man, I'm glad I got this here. We had some things in my garage that were out of order. We had a big party this week, and my daughter's going away party. She's going away uh, to college. And um, I got out in the garage, and I had to move some things, and I put my Bible up on top of my car. Uh, and as I drove away, I saw this bird fly off of my car, and I thought... I wonder what that bird was, and I wonder if that was a bird. So fortunately, I turned around and I went back, and I found my Bible, and it's okay. But uh, that's not where you want your Bible in the middle of the road. So I've got it here, and we're ready to go, ready to talk today. Um, you know, this is the beginning of the school year, and it's the time to determine who's going to win the battle of the classroom, the teacher or the students. We've got a couple teachers here, and it's a battle that begins around this time. I remember when I was a little kid, and my teacher would say, I'm going to go next door, and all of you stay in your seats, and don't get out. I'll be gone just a minute, and what happens the minute she steps out? Instant pandemonium. I'm like the only kid who's sitting. <laughs> Everybody's up. They're running around. It's crazy, but you don't want to get caught out of your seat when the teacher comes back, right? Because then you can get in all sorts of trouble. I'll tell you what, for me, when Jesus returns, I want to be in my seat. I want to do what I'm supposed to be doing. And that really is the topic we're going to tackle today, is what happens when Jesus returns. We're continuing in our Line in the Sand series. And Jesus is going to draw the line a little bit deeper between himself and the Jewish religious leaders. Remember, he, he exposed them for who they were. He exposed their hypocrisy, and they were upset with him, and it was obvious, and they were sort of posturing towards him and threatening him. And Jesus says, the only one to be afraid of is God. I fear only God. I'm not afraid of anything else, and nobody else should be either. And he goes on, he says, not only that, but he says, you shouldn't be afraid of God, and you shouldn't be so worried about your possessions. Remember we talked last week? You should be generous with your possessions, and don't worry about these things, but put God's kingdom first. Make your focus on God. And if your focus is on God, that's going to change your orientation to life. And so it leads to this next section of, you know, there's a judgment coming. Jesus is going to return. Are you ready? To explain it, Jesus uses two parables. Parables are really cool because they, for Jesus, they're very effective. They achieve two purposes. First of all, a parable is when you take a physical reality that we're familiar with and we compare it with a spiritual reality that we're not familiar with. And then as we do that, we shed light on the spiritual reality and we say, oh, that makes a whole lot more sense now. But the tricky thing about a parable is because you're speaking and you know, you're doing all this comparison, if you have enemies that are listening in, like the Jewish religious leaders, they don't know exactly what you're talking about. So you kind of keep it a little bit dark for them. So it's kind of veiled. So Jesus, if he's going to mention that he's the Messiah, he doesn't want to do that because what's going to happen? He's going to, they're going to crucify him earlier. And he has about eight months more to go. So he uses these parables so they're a little bit difficult to understand for everybody on the outside, so to speak. But yet, if you pay attention, they shed light for us and we can see things more clearly. The basic gist of the parables is that um, we need to be ready. Uh, the master is returning and we should be ready. Why should we be ready? There's a few reasons, two reasons we're going to look at primarily today. And the first one is found in Luke chapter 12 verses 35 through 40. Luke 12, 35 through 40. And it is, we need to be ready because we don't know when to expect him. The key is we don't know when to expect him. So we had better be ready. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read that to us. Verses 12, uh, 35 through 40 in Luke 12. Jesus speaking says, be dressed ready for service. 
and keep your lamps burning, like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, will have them reclined at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Now, some people think parables are difficult, but I think with the advantage of time and some basic understanding of the Bible, most of them aren't really that complicated. And we'll kind of work through this together today. First of all, who is the manager? Who would you say is the manager? Anybody want to take a guess? He gives the hint in that last line, right? He says, who is coming back again? The Son of Man. So all we have to do is figure out who the Son of Man is. The Son of Man was a title for who? For, for Jesus or for the Messiah. And Jesus has indicated a couple chapters earlier that he is the Messiah. Peter says, you know, he's the Messiah and he says he is. So Jesus is talking about himself in sort of a veiled kind of way. In third person, he's saying, I'm going to come back again. So Jesus, immediately we know that he's the manager. So if he's the, the I mean, he's, the, um, he's the, the master of the house. So if he's the master, who are the servants? Who are his servants? We are. We've got a couple hands up in the row, a couple people, not everybody maybe, but it's supposed to be all of us. All of us that are true believers with Jesus, we are the ones that he's coming back for. Now, the word for servant is doulos in Greek, which means that they're actually slaves. And this is politically correct to call them servants because people don't like to think of Jesus being used in an analogy about a slave. But it is not that Jesus endorses slavery. What Jesus is saying is that by comparison, Jesus, compared to us, is like the richest person on the planet in those days, and we're like the poorest person on the planet, the slave. And that's the analogy. Now, it raises some questions, so that come outside of the parable. And the questions are, when is Jesus leaving? Where is he going? And when will he return? When does he leave planet Earth? Anybody want to guess? What time does he leave? Resurrection, right? When he resurrects, he goes and he leaves, and he goes to heaven. So heaven is the, is the wedding banquet that he goes to. In those days, when you go to a wedding banquet, it could, you have to be ready for him to return because you don't know when they'll return. Because a wedding banquet, I mean, we had some fun weddings recently. Man, we had, um, I just thought the lambs were up here, now newly married. There was a, that was a great, great wedding. The Duns now, that was a great wedding. Just recently, we had so much fun at those wedding banquets. But in those days, wedding banquets would go days. And sometimes as long as a week. And people would have to travel long distances to get there. So they didn't know when he was going to return. And likewise, we don't know when Jesus is going to return. In fact, he says very explicitly in Mark chapter 13, verse 33, that neither he nor the angels know. So if he doesn't know, guess what? You can't know. The only people that know are the people that are writing books and giving talks and making money off of it, okay? They know. <laughs> but nobody else knows. 
Because you think about it, by definition, a prophecy, you don't understand a prophecy until it's fulfilled. It's like the prophecies about Jesus' birth. Everybody got it wrong. And after it took place, all these events were obvious. It was just so obvious that everybody looked back and said, oh, now I see. Now we know for sure he is the guy because we can look at all the events and the prophecies that came true in his life. Now we see the prophecies identified and proved that he was who he was. So when Jesus returns, we will know. And that's what they're there for. In the meantime, we have to trust in him because we don't know. Now, there's a lot of different views on this, and I just want to say this. Don't get in arguments over these things. They're good to kind of think through what you believe in and have good to healthy discussions, but there's all different views about when Jesus is going to return. In fact, there's a growing view that's popular among some people I really respect that Jesus has already returned spiritually with the fall of Jerusalem. And then he will return later again. I don't adhere to that belief because I, I think that it would have been more obvious to more people. And I think there's some events that haven't taken place yet. But I'm even willing to say, hey, I don't know. When Jesus comes, we'll know for sure. So let's not argue about that. But let's look at the things we can know for sure. We know that when it comes, we'll know because it'll be so obvious to us based on the Bible. If we're reading our Bibles and understand it. But we know also what's going to happen after he returns there will be a time of judgment. And there's no question, nobody has any problems with that one. There's going to be a time of judgment. So that will happen when he returns. Well, here's the problem, gang. Most of us aren't going to be there when he returns, right? I mean, we, we can't all be there. I mean, maybe 2% of all Christianity and all of history are going to be there when Jesus actually returns or when he already returned based on what you believe. So... I hope I'm not here when he returns. Then I'm off the hook, right? I don't have to worry about being going to judgment. It doesn't work that way. Do you know what? For you and for most of us, do you know when Jesus returns? When you die. When you die and he comes to greet you. And that's the beginning. And where your life is at at that point, that's how you'll be judged for eternity. If Jesus came today, would you be ready? That's the message here. Doesn't matter if you're here when it happens because it's the same thing for all intents and purposes when he comes to collect your soul. And so we need to make sure that we're ready. And the good news here is these guys were ready. And he was excited. And it says that this guy did something that's very unusual. The, the master of the house actually got dressed up like a servant. And he went out and he took care of them. And he gave them this great meal. They didn't do that in those days. That was very unusual. But there was a master who did that. And his name was Jesus. Because if you go to John 13... In his last supper, remember Jesus put a towel around him like a servant or a slave and he got down and he washed the feet of his disciples and he fed them a sumptuous meal for the Passover. And Jesus is going to do it again. And I believe he's talking about it in Luke 14. After the judgment, there will be a great messianic banquet. And gang, I can't wait because you can eat all you want. And you're not going to get stuffed and you can try. Everything's going to taste 
good and you're going to be with the most fascinating people you've ever met and the people you love the most. And if you have been ready, it will be a time of extraordinary celebration and honor. We have that to look forward to. Now, he gets to the flip side of it, and he talks about the people that aren't ready. And for that, he, he uses really kind of another illustration that he sort of sneaks in to the parable. And the illustration this time is about a thief coming in the night. Who would the thief be? The, yeah, Jesus is the thief. It doesn't mean he's a bad guy. Remember, this is an illustration. But he's just saying he's like a thief that comes in the night. And so then we're the homeowners. Anybody ever had anybody steal from your home? Horrible thing, isn't it? In this case, he says, if you're not ready, when Jesus comes, it will be like a homeowner who has all their possessions taken from their home. So what we have to figure out is what are the possessions, spiritually speaking? What would the possessions be? The possessions would be the rewards that God has for us in heaven. It's what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, where he says, Do not do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them, because if you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Many of us will do incredibly great things in our life, and they'll be forgotten for eternity, because we did them for our own credit, for the credit of others, because our hearts were wrong. And that's what's going to be exposed. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. And he alludes to the fact that when we get to heaven, some of our rewards will actually be burned before us. And we'll come into heaven, but it will be like passing through fire and through hell to get there. What a chilling thought. So the question Jesus leaves us with is, are you ready? How, how, do we, how do we know we're ready? What are we supposed to be doing? When we think of some of the things he's talked about recently. We're supposed to seek God first before anything else. We're supposed to seek his will and his desire before what other people want. We're supposed to do whatever he would call us to do. We're supposed to be generous with all the possessions that he gives us. Uh, it would mean that we would talk to him through prayer we have to communicate with him and we would listen to him through what he tells us in the Bible. It would mean that we would work with the other servants and that we would prepare together, not individually. We always think others take care of me. We take care of the whole church family. So that means we need to get involved in, in coming to church and getting involved in small groups, building relationships. It would mean that we are identifying you know, our Oikos community, the 8 to 15 people in our life that aren't yet in the kingdom and we're praying for them and we're inviting them to church and we're building relationships with them. And sometimes we might be out of balance in some ways, you know, and we're not spending enough time with people that don't know the Lord or we're not spending enough time people in the church. And we, we try to find those things and find balance in our lives. Those are the basics. We talk about that all the time, don't we? But are you doing them? We can't afford to be flippant here. I mean, this is serious business that he's talking about today. If Jesus comes today, and, and I'm not kidding, I mean, people, I've actually had people, we've talked about this, people can have heart attacks in church. Please don't do that. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, it can happen. People have died in church or on their way home. You don't know what's going to happen. So are you ready today if Jesus was going to call on you? Pretty haunting stuff, but very important. Jesus wants us to get this message because otherwise we just kind of, you know, dink around 
And he wants us to understand, you don't know, so you better be ready at any time. And then something interesting happens. Peter has a question, and the question leads to another parable. And in the other parable, he talks about the fact that the more given to us, the more is expected of us. And this is verses 41 through 48. So let's read that one. Verse 41, Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager? whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time. He will be good for that servant whom his master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the men servants and maid servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. That servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Now, Peter actually asks a very good question here because in the setting, remember if we go back to verse 22, Jesus is speaking specifically to the disciples, his main followers. So he's speaking to his 12 disciples, but if we go back to Luke chapter 10, we're told that there were like 72 committed followers that were coming with him. So there's probably, you know, the 12 in front of him and the 72 behind them and people behind them and people behind them and people behind them and Jewish religious leaders. So he's speaking to these people, kind of addressing them, but others are listening in. Got the scene? That's the, that's the picture we have here. So what Peter's saying is, you know, usually when you speak to us, you don't speak to us in parables. You speak in a straightforward manner. So are you speaking, are you speaking to me? <laughs> you know, that's what he's saying. Are you speaking, speaking to us? Is this us you're talking about? Or are you actually speaking to everybody else because you're using a parable? And what Jesus basically does, you know, as you look at this, is he expands it and he says, well, I am kind of speaking to my followers, but specifically, I am specifically addressing you, and by expansion, it's actually affecting everybody. And he goes on to give this other parable that enlightens us a little bit more. And once again, obviously, Jesus this time is, uh, is the master again. But in this setting, the master is leaving, and he has to have somebody that he puts in charge of his estate. And it was common in those days to have a slave that was a good administrator and honest and straightforward and you believed and trusted him and so forth. And you put him in charge while you're gone. And he would take care of everybody's food and he'd take care of them all. So Jesus is doing this. Who, who are these managers? Who do you think the managers are? What's that? They would be the apostles. He'd be, Peter would be one of them. The other disciples would be out of the others of them. Um, throughout history, after Jesus leaves, the people that he would be alluding to, because this is after he leaves, you know, when he's going to return, would be all the people that are leaders in the church. It would be pastors, it would be elders, it would be deacons or people that serve as, in our church as small group leaders, our, our marriage mentors, people that would lead different ministries in the church. Throughout history, though, all the leaders. These are the people that Jesus has allowed to be put in these positions. And how are they going to do with what he's asked them to do? 
So very interesting stuff. And he's looking at him and he's saying, you know, how, how are you guys going to do it? I would say by extension, you know who else that includes though? In those days, who were the people who would talk about being the servants of the Son of God or the Son of Messiah? Who are the people that would say that about themselves the most? Jewish religious leaders, right? And so he is sort of alluding to them, you know, when, when I come back again or when I come for you, you are the guys that God has put in position to receive me. And you aren't ready. Now, some of them would turn to him after he died, but others, when he rose again, when he would come again for them, they weren't going to be ready still. So he's sort of alluding to them as well. So again, it's kind of, and they, and they can tell that he's talking a little bit about them, but they can't quite pin it down. So boy, he's, he's setting the stage again, but it's a little bit different now. And he says that he's going to base this one on how they feed other people, their food allowance and how they take care of one another. So what does he mean? What is he looking for? You know what it made me think of because it was Peter and Jesus? In John 21, what does Jesus say to Peter three times? Feed my sheep. If, I love, if you love me, you'll feed my sheep. Remember? He says, if you love me, and then he says, feed my sheep. And he talks to him a lot about feeding my sheep. And you see that a lot in the Bible. I think that's the basic idea here is, I want you to feed my sheep. Leaders are supposed to teach people what they've learned. They're not only supposed to model the things we talked about in the first parable, but they're supposed to model that for other younger believers, and they're supposed to teach it to them, and they're supposed to take care of them. You know, we talk a lot about oikos and how you're supposed to have your 8 to 15 people that don't know the Lord. You should have those people that do know the Lord, that you're ministering to in your life. Everybody needs to have that. And he says, if you're doing a good job feeding them, when I return, you'll be rewarded. And if you're not, there will be problems. These guys are faithful. And he says, good job. And what he does is he gives them a position of honor. He gives them a promotion. And we know that in heaven, we'll have positions of honor and, and so forth because of the way that we lived on earth. Peter's a good example. I think Peter was a faithful servant. He had, and he's good because he's a classic example of a guy who made mistakes. We all make mistakes, even the greatest among us. But what Peter did is he confessed his sins when he made those mistakes. And if you confess your sins on a regular basis and keep the slate clean with God, it's not something you sweat about. You don't get all worried about it. You just do what God calls you to do. You do the things that he's asked you to do, one thing at a time, and you're faithful. And if you do something wrong and he brings that to your attention, you feel guilty or wrong, you take that to him and say, man, I'm sorry, I blew it. And give it to him and you just keep on going. And that's how you live your Christian life. You just keep doing what he's asked you to do. And you're faithful and he rewards you forever in heaven. What about the other guy though here? This is pretty chilling, isn't it? Guy gets himself cut. And, I mean, it literally means cut apart. Because what he does is he's a wicked, evil man. And he actually beats the other servants. And he's a drunk slob. And Jesus comes again and finds him that way. Who's he talking about? He says he's not even a believer at the end. Are there any of the disciples that would be that kind of manager? How about Judas? That's a good example of somebody who was assigned to be a manager of Jesus' kingdom. And he ends up betraying Jesus. We could say the Jewish religious leaders. They were essentially assigned to protect the Messiah and they end up calling him uh, Beelzebul. They say he's part of Satan. 
those guys are going to be in a lot of trouble. Other false prophets who have divided churches through, this, through the years with their false teachings and those that have cults, they're going to have to pay a price. Now, Jesus is using hyperbole here. You know, hyperbole is exaggerated explanation. All right, because if what he's going to talk about is punishment, he could just say, oh, it's going to be a very, very severe punishment. But instead, he says, I'm going to cut them to pieces because that makes a stronger point. Because he's a great speaker, and great speakers speak that way. They don't just say things in a, you know, kind of a flat way. They don't just get the facts. They really get it across to you, and that's how Jesus speaks. Um, we do that all the time today. If one girl says to another girl, I'm going to tell that boy you have a crush on him, and the other girl says, if you do, I'll kill you. She doesn't mean I'm packing, baby. You better start running, right? What she means is, don't do it because I really, really don't want you to do it. And if you do, I'll be really, really upset and it'll really, really hurt our relationship. And I don't know how to say it more strongly than that. I'll kill you. Okay? So we do that all the time, don't we? And, and that's what Jesus is saying. So how can you tell, though, when it's hyperbole or not? It's usually fairly clear. This one's actually really clear when you think about it. If you cut a person in part, apart, what happens to their life? They die, unless it's, unless it's Monty Python, right? They, they die when you cut them apart, or, and they fall down, it's over. Well, right afterwards, he says in present tense, I'm going to sign in the be with the unbeliever, so he's still alive. So he didn't kill him. This is hyperbole. He's saying, I'm going to, he's going to have a very severe punishment because of what he did, and then after that, he's going to hell because he's not a true believer, he's a fake. Now, the other guys, he doesn't say they're going to hell. So they're true believers, but we've got other problems. One guy, he knew the right thing to do, and he didn't do it. He was unfaithful, and he knew better. And he's going to get punished by God. And it's going to be like going through fire to get to heaven for that guy. Who would that be today? How about pastors who fail in ministry morally and never turn around and run off with another woman? Or, or become drunken slobs. Or elders who do things that are unethical. Or, you know, I mean, anybody like that. You can start just kind of filling in the blanks. Bible study leaders that are sloppy with their teaching are, are a bad example to people. Anything like that, and people are living like that, and they're not repenting, they're not living their lives well. Or even people, and this is probably true of most people, it's, that's not even the problem. They're just not trying that hard. They're not doing what they should do. They're just sort of lazy about their leadership role. And they don't accomplish what they could. They just sort of coast. And Jesus comes back and says, what have you been doing for me? And, and they're going to be in trouble. So we need to watch out for leaders like this, but we also need to make sure that we're not that kind of leader. And then the next one is the most interesting. He talks about a person who is going to still get get in trouble, he's going to be punished for what he did wrong, but it says he's going to get off the hook on a lot of stuff because he didn't know better. He's the ignorant, unfaithful person. It kind of makes you want to be, yeah, a stupid, <laughs> a stupid Christian, right? Yeah, an ignorant Christian. Yeah, just don't know too much. Just come once a month, you know, to church, kind of get a little bit. Don't know too much so that when the day comes, you say, Lord, I just didn't know. <laughs> I had no idea. But it, it doesn't work that way. Because, for example, in Romans 2, it even says that uh, God, he places his law on our hearts. So even people that don't know him, 
know in their hearts truly what is right or wrong, and their conscience bothers them and so forth. So people basically know what they need to do. And so he's given that information. But I think what's relieving in a sense that I know that we miss a lot of things as a church. There's just no way we can cover all the bases. And every once in a while, I just go, oh man, I think we might be missing something here. And I try to do the best I can. And the other guys, we try to do that. But while we're here on earth, we're still going to miss things. We're going to drop the ball. We're never going to have the perfect church. That's the way it goes. And we don't have to get hung up about it. We don't have to be worried about it all the time. Because God, you know, knows, you know, he knows we don't know everything. We do the best we can with what we do know. In our country, we know way more than others. And so we need to be responsible for that. But there, the things we don't know, that's the way it goes. There are other places where they don't know. David, there's a lot of people that, where you go that don't have information. And they're doing things wrong. But God's not going to hold that against them because they didn't know. He's going to hold that against us for not telling them. You see, we're the ones that need to be responsible for helping them know. But did you know that the church is growing faster than it ever has in history in South America? in Africa, and in Asia. It's exploding. It's never grown so fast. And you know what the problem is? Is they don't have anybody to teach them and disciple them. And so it's just, it's some really chaotic, crazy stuff is happening. And that's where we come in and we have to send people or go and help people along those lines. What it really comes down to is a leader needs to be doing what they, they know, need to know what they should know. You need to know what you should know, what's been available to you. Did you take advantage of that information? Now, Jesus sums this up, and he said, you know, to, to those who've been given much, much is going to be expected of them, right? That's a, a, a pretty big deal. And, and we think, well, that seems kind of rough. Jesus is the God of grace. He died on the cross for us. God forgives us. We don't deserve to go to heaven. We don't deserve to have a relationship with him. He does all this wonderful stuff. He shows us his mercy. And then he, he comes back with this. But I think it's, it's, it's just... And it's right. Because, you see, we, we are not competing with each other. Everybody is different, and everybody has a different calling within the body of Christ. And we're all responsible for what God has given us. And if somebody has more gifts and somebody has more responsibility, then they'd better do a good job with it. And if they don't, they're going to be held accountable. And if they do, they're going to be richly rewarded. But if they don't, it's going to be a bad day when Jesus returns. So it's like this. You may know some people that, and I'll say this, and you'll come up with people, and I'm not even thinking of anybody in particular really, but there are people that are famous. They're mega church pastors on television, write books, everybody knows them. And yet, it may be that that person does everything for themselves. And people are worshiping them, not God. And they're not really teaching their people or helping their people like they should. And maybe they're doing some things unethically with money that we don't know about. And maybe they have some other problems. So when they get to heaven, when Jesus returns for them, we're going to find out that they're not going to have a high position for eternity. And some of you in this room have been very faithful with everything God has asked you to do. And you'll have a higher position for them, them for eternity. And so it, it really, you know, as we move more into applications, this is what should inspire us is to say, I want to do the best I can with what I am called to do. Because that's going to set me up for the rest of eternity. You ever think about that? That's an amazing thought. And by the way, can I say this, that everybody in this room is a leader? 
because you're all leading somebody, even if it's a new believer or your children or your niece and nephew or whatever it is, you're leading somebody. And others in this room have even higher callings at this point. They may be on our board of directors. They may be um, leading like our marriage mentors. They may be our small group leaders. And it's even going to be more difficult for you guys. But everybody has to be ready for that day because God's going to judge you based on what he gave you. And you don't have an excuse. You can't say I was ignorant. I didn't know if that information was available to you. So are you doing what God wants you to do? You know, people say, well, when the kids get older, well, when I get done with school, you know, when my work isn't so busy, it doesn't work that way. He will come at an hour you don't expect. Are you doing what he wants you to do today? I think it's a good thing for us to go and, and, and examine ourselves every once in a while. I, I want to ask you to go home today and think about this. Is there anything in your life that you can do that God is calling you to do that you've been suppressing? Maybe he's calling you to go overseas and you know it, but you've been holding back on it. Or maybe he's asking you to serve, you know, with the children. Or maybe he's, hey, there's some outreach that you feel like you want to get involved in. What is it? What is it that God wants you to do? How can you serve him with the gifts and abilities that you have that are unique only to you? And if you have questions, come and talk to us. I want you to think about what, what more could you do? Is there anything else that he would call you to do? It's not a stress thing. It's a matter of just praying and identifying what he's already doing in your life and saying, am I, am I stepping up or not? Um, so think about that and, and pray about that this week. You know, getting back to the whole school thing, you know, we started with the classroom thing. I really wasn't a bad boy growing up. I was pretty good. But I had a few scoldings. And I remember one in particular. I was in second grade. I still remember this. Um, I was in second grade, and, and what happened is it was lunchtime, and another little boy came up to me and he said, I forgot my lunch pail. I left it in front of my classroom. I'm really hungry. Will you come with me and we can go get it? And I hesitated because his classroom was, it, it was located on this one hallway, and that hallway was strictly forbidden during lunchtime. Nobody went down that hallway. It was like, we didn't know what was there. You know, it was like Darth Vader or something. We were scared of that hallway. And he said, no, no, it's just the teachers and they're probably out to lunch. And you know what? We'll crawl on hands and knees so no one will see us anyway. So I said, okay, I'll come with you. I mean, what a dummy. I mean, I'm going with him. It wasn't even for my own. So we're crawling on the ground. And as we're crawling past the first door, it opens. And out walks Mrs. Luby. She was my first grade teacher, and I adored her. And she had a great name. Here we go, Luby Lou. You know, she was the quintessential teacher of the era. She had gray hair. She was kind of short and stout, and she had these glasses that kind of turned up at the end, you know. And she, she brought me in the room. Miss Millard was in there, the teacher from the other room, and she put both of us up against the wall. She looked me in the eye while she talked to Miss Millard, and she says, I can't believe what happened to Ron. She said, just a year ago, he was one of the finest young men that I ever had. <laughs> And look at what's happened to him now. I had become a common criminal. <laughs> and I, she, could have, she could have whipped me and it wouldn't have hurt worse. I was, I was done. I could feel the tears trickling down my cheeks. I was completely defeated at that moment. And I still remember that. 
It's one of those worst memory kind of things of getting in trouble. I still remember looking into those brown eyes and her talking to me. Yeah, Ron was such a nice boy, you know. Maybe they're blue eyes. I don't know. But anyway, but I do remember those eyes, you know, and I just, and the glasses. And, and then I think to myself, I think, when Jesus comes again, I don't want him to find me crawling in the hallway. I want to be standing up proclaiming his word. And I don't, I don't want to look in his eyes and have him say to the Father, I'm so disappointed in Ron. I want him to hug me and say, well done, good and faithful servant. But if that's going to happen, I have to be ready. We have to be ready. Okay? Are you ready? Think about that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these parables. They're, they're pretty heavy hitting. They're, they're strong words. Um, but I think they're necessary words because you don't want to punish us. You want to honor us. And you have this incredible messianic banquet just waiting for us, Lord. Boy, what an exciting time that will be. Lord, I pray for anybody that doesn't know you today, I, you know, that they'd come and talk to us, that they could come into relationship with you as well, and that all of us could join together one day. Uh, that, that banquet and rejoice. But the only way we're going to get there and get there as unscathed as possible and really enjoy it is by confessing our sins and walking day by day with you and being faithful to all you call us to do. So I pray that we would do just that. And we pray this in your name. Amen.